You're listening to Irish Radio Candidate Home Abroad and we're at the Museum of Literature in Ireland in the south side of St. Stephen's Green next to the Newman Chapel and Anthony Norman is here with me. Anthony, thanks a million for uh, being here and being willing to spend a little time and talk about this place. First of all, tell me a bit about the building. Yeah, no problem. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so, this is number 86, Stephen's Green. Um, the museum itself is spread over three uh, buildings on the green on the south side. So it's two Georgian era townhouses and then an exam hall, the Aula Maxima, which was built when it was a university. And it was built when, did you say? Um, so number 86 was built in 1765. This is the one we're standing in right now. Um, and it was built for um, a man named Richard Chapel Whaley. Um, his, name, his nickname was Born Chapel Whaley because he was strongly anti-Catholic. Um, his son, slightly more famous, Thomas Buck Whaley. Uh, books for kind of men about town, ramblers, gamblers and so on. Um, he made a bet that he could make it to Jerusalem and back uh, within the space of a year. And he did and he won the equivalent of two million and um, still eventually ended up broke because of his extravagant lifestyle and sold the, the, uh, the house in 1790. You mentioned Buck one of Joyce's characters is Buck Mulligan. Exactly, so Buck, exactly, stately plump Buck Mulligan and um, that's exactly, it goes back to that, the books, the men about town. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess that's where Buck would come from. Exactly, yeah, from young books, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so then the, um, so the building itself originally was University College Dublin. So yeah, Georgian Townhouse Force and then 1853 um, and 1854 the Newman University, the, um, the Catholic University was established as I say. Um, and then eventually that rebrands to UCD and then UCD is here, expands to Earlsport Terrace, has the Aula Maxima, the exam hall and then moves out to Belfield in the 1950s. And Rose for Terrace is now the National Cancer Club. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, I know there's a picture in the world of Joyce and his graduation there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so Joyce, so it's very fitting that this is a museum of literature because it was the university um, lots of famous Irish writers graduated from, from these walls. So James Joyce, obviously, probably the, the biggest among them. We had Flann O'Brien, Maeve Binchy, Kate O'Brien as well, who all graduated from here. Thomas Kinsella as well. Um, so, yeah. At this time, there was another university in Dublin. So, the University College of Dublin would have been where the Catholic population was, whereas Trinity was Exactly. So, this was seen as kind of... Um, uh, a rival to the, the quote-unquote godless university of, of Trinity. That's, yeah, so that's, that's how it would have been seen. So the idea for the Museum of Literature um, evolved at some point. Um, where did that spark happen? So it actually happened um, in Bewley's on Grafton Street. Um, so Eamon Kent, the, the founding chair of the museum, also done a lot of work over the years at UCD uh, and Margaret Kelleher, a uh, professor of uh, Anglo-Irish literature um, and one or two others were sitting down having a coffee um, and they'd realised that this building should be put to better use you know it kind of wasn't being used to its full purpose uh, it was no longer a university very few classes happening here few functions and, and um, events and stuff like that so they said that yeah we should look into making it a museum of literature so when we walk through the door here from the, what is the, the welcome room effectively mm-hmm. uh, we're into a gallery of Irish modern Irish writers uh, what, is there a time period that this yeah. portrait gallery. So this is uh, Joyce's century. So 
I guess more accurately it could be 20th century of Irish writers, people active during Joyce's lifetime or people born during Joyce's lifetime should I say. Um, the point here is that people come into the museum with their idea of what Irish literature involves and who it involves and that even for the well-versed we'd hope that we'd have somebody that you know they've never heard of before. They could go home, discover a new favourite writers, writer of theirs and um, also to showcase the kind of rich uh, history of Irish literature that we've had even just over the last hundred years or so. Um, you know, four Nobel Prize winners for literature, George Bernard Shaw, Samuel Beckett, W.B. Yeats, um, and some of the names at the moment actually that Martin McDonough is in there. Martin, Martin Mac- McDonough, yeah, exactly. Um, oh, and Seamus Heaney, fourth Seamus Nobel Heaney Prize winner, the last Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. Um, and then from Canadian's perspective, Emma Donoghue. Exactly, yeah. And um, she's uh, featured there. And um, Neil Tobin, uh, we are um, Colin Tobin. Yeah, Colin Tobin is there, Louis McNeese. And a lot of writers have international recognition. Exactly. Like yeah. Doyle yeah. And Bram Stoker. You yeah. know. Um, and a lot of these writers also, their works have ended up on the big screen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, also it's kind of interesting with her is that people are kind of getting as kind of retrospectively, you know, people that probably were relatively unknown during their own lifetime have kind of, kind of gone on to gain prominence. Um, Kate O'Brien uh, would be an example of that. Um, Maeve Brennan would be another example, you know. Um, lived in New York, she wrote for the New Yorker. Um, it's only in the last couple of years that people have kind of regarded her as, you know, one of the finest short story writers to, to, to come from Ireland. Um, and then behind us in this room, and is, uh, when you say that, of course, and it leads to this room, is the Irish are known as storytellers. Exactly, yeah. And rich storytelling tradition. Um, this room looks at the Blasket Islands, just off the coast of Kerry. Um, and uh, the storytelling tradition that comes from there, you know, for such a small population, never more than 150 people at a time. Um, but they had a huge output, early, 20, early to mid 20th century. Um, and Peg Sears, I guess, is chief chief among them, um, queen of Irish storytellers. So in many ways, but the Irish would have had an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, older cultures would, you could go to Wales, Scotland, probably find the same type of oral tradition. And really, we've got to a point where that oral tradition was able to migrate towards the printing. Exactly, yeah. Um, like with the, the Blaskets, you know, the last people to leave the island was 1954. Um, you know, the most isolated enclave of Irish language speakers, you know, across the country, yeah. um, cut off from the from the mainland, you know, without a- easy access to written words, to written texts. You know, so oral storytelling would have been of huge importance to them. And I guess for going to print costs money. Exactly. Yeah. So storytellers like again. You know, the old Shanaki yeah. was such an important part of the Irish tradition. Exactly. So all these kind of factors lead lead to um, kind of what happened then, I guess, in Blaskets, for example. Um, so in many ways, what really is a reflection of where we are at the moment in this room is the transition from some of the, what would have been the Shanaki and have taken to that to put it on paper. Exactly, yeah. So Peg Sears, her father, uh, he was a storyteller himself. That's where she learned most of her trade. Um, you know, she was able to, to rattle off over 375 stories, you know, kind of at any given time. And, you know, and the, the, by the 30s at least, you know, her reputation kind of preceded her a bit. You know, people were traveling from far and wide to listen to her, you know, to sit down beside her, listen to her tell these stories. Um, 
not just enthusiasts but folklorists and preservationists you know um, from across Europe where that would have dealt with you know kind of lost cultures or you know kind of dying cultures and they would have um, helped to preserve them so we have some of them highlighted in the exhibition uh, Carl Mastrander uh, Robin Flowers another one as well so he here's Robin Flowers here he actually I think he was the first to record Peg onto um, the Edaphone and as well as looking at the history of Peg, the history of the island, it also looks at the history of the, the Folklore Commission itself and um, how in, when it was established in the 1930s, you know, the name has changed a couple of times over the years um, but you know, that, that was it was people like Peg that were very kind of front and centre of, of what they were trying to document. While we're in the print side of a museum here, are you aware of any of the voice recordings from Peg's recordings maintained? Yeah, so there is a few. Um, so we have a few examples even at the end of the room here. So these earpieces, uh, visitors can put these up to there. You might hear Peg, you might hear other islanders as well. Right. You know, when Peg's first book was, um, was published in the 30s, um, I think it was transcribed by her son, and um, you know, a couple of years before that, four books had been published from the island. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah, um, I know this was Mihal Sullivan's twenty years ago. Exactly, um, yeah. Yes, Thomas O'Curhan as well. Yes, um, he's there, the island man. And these are some of the artifacts from Peg's house. Exactly. So this is Peg's holy picture that would have uh, hung on her wall. Um, these are again some of the people involved in the folklore commission. Some of the people um, responsible for kind of us having such a rich uh, understanding of Peg, and um, we can kind of give credit to these as well for that. When you mentioned the folklore commission, it was very far-sighted at the time of the government mm-hmm. to actually establish such a commission. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was. And now, like if you look at it, you know, a couple of years ago, it was. Um, the Folklore Commission was added to the UNESCO Global Register, you know, basically, right. so to recognise its importance. So, Andy, your own interest in literature then, where did it come from? Um, so that would have came from, I guess, growing up. I've always just had a, an interest in literature. I was always, you know, encouraged to read from, right. from a young age and always took a liking to it. And it um, wasn't desperate then? No, 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 no. Uh, it would have been, and then you know, with history, then as well, it would have been people like my granddad and huge kind of history buff, I guess. Right. You know, so we would have talked a lot. That would have helped with that. Yeah, yeah, because you know, oftentimes it's you need something that will bring history to life and literature to life exactly in order to get you a hook. Yeah, and that's people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And where did you, did you study at UCD? I did, yeah. So I studied out in UCD and graduated two years ago. Right. Um, yeah. Um, what are we looking at here? So this is the, the cataloguing involved in the, the Folklore Commission. You know, the kind of uh, criteria, how to organise things, you know, the handwritten paper, everything so in-depth. Um, you kind of see the, the kind of work involved in that. So this was kind of the, when they were going out together, this is the boxes that they needed to take. Exactly, yeah. Um, you know, as well as the, the physical kind of heavy materials that they would have had to, to lug around as well. Like the, like the edifice oh, on yeah. the back of the yeah. voice stuff, you know. Because yeah, that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's a hell of a kind of piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you talk, you think in those terms as well, I think that was probably before the world of application. Exactly, yeah. So when they would have gone out with the other phone, I'm just blasted. 
being able to recharge batteries or <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it would, yeah no go like um, even but you know from just visiting the blast a, a couple of months ago right. you know, there's, still, there's no electricity there you know and you met the couple out on the exactly out on the island uh, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I talked to him yeah Brock yeah, yeah I talked to him earlier in the year I actually need to follow up with him yeah. now that he has done his season yeah yeah I know how it was how are we doing what are we doing here um, so then this is River Run so this is a piece that was commissioned for the museum and we are set up um, and you know it's motion censored fully interactive it looks at um, it comes from River Run of Language so it looks at Hiberno-English the relationship that uh, Irish people have with the English language as spoken in Ireland and the influences that the Irish language have had on English um, and how writers have explored um, and played around with that over the years you know Joyce being kind of front and centre of that I guess um, and then yeah so if you stand underneath the different motion sensors activated pods um, soundscapes will kind of shower down on you and they'll come up on the screen with different quotes from, from different writers across the years um, yeah we kind of tell visitors to you know, give the tours to kind of give a bit of context and then to explore it then themselves at the end I was recently talking to somebody <coughs> about Irish and how the Irish words um, filtered into international English mm-hmm. and in particular in the US how there was no recognition that they were of the Irish origin okay. and a guy by the name of Daniel Cassidy wrote a book how the Irish invented slang the language of the crossroads okay. it's a brilliant book yes. he goes it's like a dictionary and he says you know the word um, he says the word jazz comes from chess Okay, okay. And yeah. we all know Shanty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we know Galore. Yeah. Which is what he said was if you go to an American dictionary, yeah. it's origin unknown. Oh, okay. the assumption that the Irish could not have be intelligent enough or cultured enough to actually contribute anything. Yeah, yeah. I was like even um, something similar. I don't know how true it is now, but the, the phrase that you would have heard in America quite a lot, you dig, like you do understand, do you yeah. dig, that comes from on digging too. And then they say, well, like a scam. Yeah. A scam is a ruse. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I have understood sound. that when you go around the block, it's in Ballock. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ballock. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have a we have a way of talking. Exactly. And, and exactly. That way of talking. And that's what that kind of explores a little yeah. bit there. Yeah. Um, a letter here from James Joyce. Yeah. So this is a letter from Joyce to Yeats, written yeah. in 1912. Um, Hugely interesting just for the fact of seeing two, two of the biggest figures in Irish literature interacting with each other um, it's in, in the letter itself. I find it interesting, he says, Dear Yeats. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. He does say... Yeah, William. Or no, 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 in the letter itself, Joyce is um, discussing how hard it is getting Dubliners published uh, based on the content of it. Um, publishers are kind of reluctant to go near it. Um, context for the letter then itself. So, at the time in 1912, Yeats was well established. You know, right. he's, he's a prominent Irish writer. Joyce is still relatively, you know, he's still very much trying to trying to make it. You know, trying to get his foot in the door. And Yeats would have helped with that. He would have introduced him to the right people. Um, you know, literary circles, I guess. But then, 
as well. It kind of gives you an insight into the the attitude of Joyce. Uh, Yates recalls meeting Joyce for the first time when he was 37, and Joyce was 19. And he said, "I've met you far too late. You're too old now." Um, so it kind of gives you a, an insight into the the brazenness of Joyce, I guess. And the piece you've identified here is that um, the face of his Dubliners. Yeah. They refused. Uh, Roberts refused to publish it. Yeah. Um, are we in Ireland now with this? It's yeah, this is in Ireland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's just yeah, he's finding it difficult to get Dubliners published here. Interestingly enough, as well, 1912. It's also the last year. It's the year he leaves Ireland for the last time. Right. Uh, and that would have been one of the contributing factors. You know how hard it was getting his work published there. And uh, they say that Roberts broke up the type, and he had to struggle even just to get the copy of the first. Exactly. And that would be the first edition that's on display upstairs. Upstairs, yeah. Fantastic. Um, um, so we're heading to we're heading into Dublin. We are, uh, yes. This is very dirty Dublin. This is yeah. Joyce's Dublin. Um, it's a 3D recreation of modern day Dublin, uh, featuring um, places and landmarks that are still that were referenced in Joyce's works. Um, that, you can, that still exist today, I guess, and it takes, that takes people by surprise um, to kind of orientate ourselves as well. You know, we're on this side over here, where yeah. uh, Ivy Garden, Stephen Crane, um, Newman House. So it's kind of colour-coded, so the yellow is places mentioned in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, uh, Joyce's um, novel about his student days, and then we have green colour um, is Dubliners, Joyce's book of short stories, and then blue is Ulysses. Um, Joyce's, you know, Day in the Life of Leopold Bloom, 16th of June 1904. Um, so that's featured here as well. Now, when I see the blue, I see the Liffey is in blue and the canals are in blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would have said, that, I said that's just water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so you have places like you know the Gresham Hotel. We have that marked. Um, it's where the, the most famous story from from Dubliners, the Dead. That's where it's featured. Um, the Dead added much later to Dubliners than the rest of the stories because he wanted to. Uh, he realised he'd been harsh on the city. And he wanted to end the, the book on a slightly more tender note with Gabriel Conroy's soul swooning over the city. Um, we have uh, David Byrne's pub, where Leopold Bloom gets his glass of port and his golden gorgonzola sandwich. Um, Sweeney's Pharmacy, where people still visit on Bloomsday um, to get their lemon, their bar of lemon soap. Um, so yes, there's still very much, you know, as much as Dublin has changed, there's still a few of these places that still exist. Um, we don't have Finnegan's Wake on the map because it's we have a film version um, commissioned for it by Susie Lopez and Dave Tynan. Right. So they've done a film adaptation, which we think Joyce might have liked because, as you can see over there in the image, um, Joyce owned and operated the, the first cinema in Ireland, the Volta Cinema, in 1909 on Mary Street, um, funded by um, wealthy Triestians that he just kind of corralled into being benefactors, I guess. Um, Joyce came from a reasonably wealthy background. He, he did, yeah. Um, if he traces kind of his childhood homes, he starts off in quite you know comfortable living. Um, but then due to his, you know, his father's drink and a few other factors, each house that they move in, they move quite a lot as a child. Um, each house is slightly worse off than the one before it. Um, yeah. We also just have, you know, the different places that he's lived, you know, and a bit of history about them. Uh, Trieste, Rome, Zurich, Paris, um, some of the people involved in his life. Uh, you'll see over there Harriet Shaw Weaver, uh, one of his... Um, 
the primary benefactors, um, so much so that he donated the first copy of, or he inscribed the first copy of Ulysses uh, to her and gave it to her, uh, which we have on display upstairs. Considering he had such difficulty getting the first it published and Roberts refused to do it, where did he go from there? Um, that's a good question. Now, I'm not too sure where Dubliners was first published, but I'm going to assume it was overseas. Yeah. It was 1912. Yeah. Now, that's what I'm going to assume. I could, could very much be wrong on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I see then that he is there, your um, portraits of what would have been his contemporaries and his friends. Exactly, yeah. Who were very prominent figures in music and literature. Exactly. So we have Samuel Beckett there. Um, Samuel Beckett would have been kind of Joyce's protege as well. Um, you know, hugely indebted to, to Joyce and, you know, would have worked a lot with him in, in Beckett's uh, early years. Um, Sylvia Beach, another woman, hugely important in Joyce's life, and um, the, the founder of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop in Paris, where writers like Joyce and his contemporaries like uh, Hemingway and Eliot, um, they would have very much been, been in those literary circles, and Shakespeare and Company would have been both a publisher, um, but also kind of a, you know, it would have been a place to, to feed and to water these people, you know, when they were kind of uh, up against it. And John McCormick is there because um, not a, it's not always yeah. identified that Joyce really enjoyed music. He did, yeah. He was a talented singer, and um, yeah, and him, him and John McCormick and. Um, I had a friendship as well, which that kind of references over there. Uh, Oliver St. John Gogarty, um, he's also, you know, the first lines of Ulysses' stately plump book mulligan. That's a, a portrayal of, of Oliver St. John, and that's, that's who, he, who he's alluding to there. So, after being immersed in Joyce and this store, uh, it's upstairs, is it? It is, yeah. So, we'll head and upstairs. From a time period then, or is, is there a time period, like we, well, as we before we entered in here, we saw the portraits of all what would be the art, uh, writers in Joyce's time zone. Um, what are we moving up into? So, this is the, the state and Irish writing. So, it looks at the creation of the Irish state in 1922. Okay. The, the years preceding the revolutionary years. Um, we'll just walk around here. Um, and the impact of that on literature, I guess, and the, the relationship with literature is what this explores. Um, and at that time, literature was um, monitored very closely. It was, yeah. So, but you know, just before that, you know, the end of the nineteenth century, start of the twentieth century, there's a huge renaissance, renewed interest in Irish culture, um, Irish language, Irish folklore, Irish literature, uh, Irish arts and crafts, um, you know, and it was all kind of bubbling towards what kind of happened then in nineteen sixteen, where you know you have your week long kind of attempt to to break from the British Empire, eventually crushed after a week, um, leads to the the war. Of independence and then you know the, the civil war then um, but if you take for instance over here one of the, the most important items in the museum's collection is um, this copy of Easter 1916 by WB Yeats um, one of, of 25, I'm pretty sure, that was um, in Yeats's personal possession and that he would have gave to close family and friends before mm -hmm. it was published on a wider scale. Um, ends with the most famous line probably in, in Irish poetry, a terrible beauty is born. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, yeah, Joyce was right, or Yeats was right, um, you know, following 
1916, you know, a terrible beauty was unleashed yes. with the with the, with the three symbols of a war. Exactly, yes. exactly. And um, the consequences are still there. Exactly, and then over here we have kind of explorers that post independence. You know, those that there was a huge crossover between those involved in those years and the, the cultural sphere of Ireland. So it looks at that and um, post independence people were kind of documenting and reflecting on, on their uh, participation in, in the various struggles and um, so you have people like Ernie O'Malley who, who published memoirs based on his involvement in those years um, Rosamond Jacob we have some of her uh, diary entries on display um, more of them are found in the National Library and she was an Irish suffragette and Republican um, would have been involved in those years would have been you know she, she was quoted as saying that she always felt like she was on the outside looking in, but she would have known all of these people that, mm-hmm. were, that were, you know, kind of what was happening. Um, and then, yeah, then it looks at kind of post-independence, you know, the debate about what, what uh, independent Ireland should look like. Um, you know, obviously now we know with retrospect that was a Catholic Ireland, mm-hmm. conservative Ireland. Um, you know, when you see one of the tools that were, was used to, to kind of mould Ireland into this shape, uh, which was censorship. So we see the blacklist here, a document that lists some of the, the publications that were deemed um, worthy of censorship, I guess. You know, you have tabloids like the News of the World and the Sunday News, uh, but then you also have things like Woman's World, Woman's Weekly, Girls' Mirror, Girls' Favour. So it gives you an idea mm-hmm. of what, mm-hmm. what wasn't uh, deemed appropriate. Um, what's interesting in many ways also is that, you know, that in modern day, that you look at that and you kind of say, oh, the news of the world was around then. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. obviously it was printed the same way as it did. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, that such kind of that there was the range of uh, publications and. And most of the ones I see on the top of the list would be emanating from England. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, and then like even for instance over here you have the report of the Committee on Evil Literature. Um, you know, published in 1926. So this would have kind of forwarded detail that. And then on the flip side you have Irish Society for Intellectual Freedom. Um, but, you know, also, as well as, you know, the kind of stifling effect that this would have had, the censorship and, you know, restricting creative freedom, um, some writers seem as a, as a bit of a badge of honour to be censored by the state, you know, the likes of Edna O'Brien, where Country Girls, um, Samuel Beckett as well, Brendan Behan, because you're provoking talk mm-hmm. and you're making mm-hmm. people uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. And you're raising the debate for, you know, a, a free Ireland, what it should look like, which is a, a place that people can discuss freely, can write freely. Um, you know, and then on this side over here, we look at, you know, despite the censorship, we see the, other, the ways in which Irish literature, Irish creative um, expression was kind of flourishing at the time, you know, with the first radio broadcast in 1926, that opens up a whole new avenue of kind of... Um, of you know where people can express themselves, radio plays, radio dramas, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, on Goom, the Irish Publication Company uh, established to, because of the renewed interest in the Irish language. What's interesting as well is how what was censored is now treasured. Yeah, yeah. The circle has turned that all those that would have been exiled are the very ones that are. Being 
exactly the, the, the ones that display. exactly yeah the ones that lasted um, so I guess it's not untypical of so many other aspects of I guess any emerging and evolving country and uh-huh. um, when we're walking through it's, just, it's nice to see there's a lot of people visiting at the moment uh-huh. and the environment is such that they're sitting calmly quietly in, in a very peaceful um, a serene environment. Yeah, it's kind of deliberate choice for the museum, you know, to kind of make sure there's plenty of spaces for people to kind of sit down. You know, we have books on display that we kind of encourage people to, to pick up and read as well. Um, you know, um, so then these two small exhibitions, we look at young adult writing, young adult fiction now at the moment, uh, going through a bit of a boom, but also a bit of a reappraisal. Um, you know, it's not just seen as uh, literature for kids. You know, it's seen as a as a, a genre where you know serious issues can be can be discussed. You know, societal issues, um, and you know we, we showcase some of the writers that are doing this. Um, you know, the likes of Louise O'Neill, um, and then also in um, the Irish language as well. So we have a few examples. I know there's a annual Dublin Reads. Yeah. Um, do you guys engage in that in, in any way? I would imagine um, was in your lap to some degree. Not, not quite. Like you know, we have lots of different different events. Maybe we will at some point in time. But like you know, we have a lot of workshops, and you know, we have our own learning department as well that does uh, things with skills and outreach kind of programs. Uh, Edna O'Brien herself very de- uh, generously donated towards um, uh, Edna O'Brien Young Writers Bursary that happens every summer. So she handpicks a writer to deliver, you know, a week or two week masterclass right. with um, with kind of teenagers basically who apply you know and then right. we kind of pick from there you mentioned there that something that's interesting uh, given that we're kind of out coming out of the summer and the summer's over um, summer school would that be something because I know parents all over the world are always kind of trying to figure out where am I sending the kids is um, were there summer school programs um, well the Edna O'Brien one kind of works as one because they, they get to stay out in UCD for you know the, the week or how long they do it for right um, and then as well as that you know we have a couple of different like there's a UCD summer school that happens and it's, you know there's constantly things happening here um, you know and you know for, to talk about what's happened in the past you know there could be 15 more things that will happen this time next year like you right. know right and of course this is your first real year exactly yeah it was our first uh, first summer uh, fully open Um, you know we opened in September 2019 the worst possible time to open the museum Um, so we had a couple of firsts our first summer um, our first blooms day open as well Uh, so you know so you know we kind of feel like we're three years old, but also we don't in ways, you know. And how was the first summer? First summer was good. It was nice to see a lot of international visitors coming in, you know, with kind of restrictions, right. uh, loosening and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's a whole demographic that we didn't have for, you know, two years, yeah. effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with that, you know, that brings down, you know, kind of things of, and questions as well, which is quite nice. Um, but I would imagine like, you're, you're going to get a different questions from your international visitors than your Exactly. If you were to kind of say what would be the most um, common question you might get from non-Irish? Non-Irish? Um, it depends. Um, I guess even like on a 
basically just even asking more so about Joyce himself you know right. like, you know, as much as he's internationally renowned you know there's still people that haven't you know come across him that much um, so kind of, or you know it's also nice as well when we get international visitors and they give their connections to Ireland or Irish literary history you know last week I done a tour and there was a lady on it from Luxembourg and in Luxembourg at the moment there's a Joyce exhibition on okay. um, because Joyce stayed there for a number of days and they have a lot of his letters on display so things like that are quite nice as well that you wouldn't get without that kind of international visitor. And what do you tend to get from the Irish sisters? A certain taking for granted in some cases. Yeah, um, what's been nice is the, the reaction to Peg. Uh, you know, people coming in of a certain generation that don't peg on the for you know skill, yeah. and you know they kind of grimace or you know they're like, oh, here's Peg. Yeah. And then you know by the end of the exhibition, their opinions change a little bit. You right. know, kind of, yeah, so yeah. which is quite nice. Yeah. So what we're looking at is a wall that has translations of uh, Joyce's work. Exactly. Um, How many languages are you aware it has been translated into? So this is to highlight the, I guess the, the far reach that Joyce's work has had. You know, he's been published in over twenty languages. Right. Um, everything from. Mandarin to Arabic to Spanish to French so we have some of these some copies of different works here um, you know a lot of them we started with and then the nice thing that happened was that embassies would visit and various different ambassadors and so on would donate a copy from their country in their language yeah. which is quite nice so we have the Mandarin uh, Ulysses we have the Finnish Ulysses so they were both kind of recent enough and um, yeah, and then behind us is our cinema room where we have our companion exhibition to, to Peg series. So it's a 20 minute video piece by Gary Coyle and looks at the island, the Blasted Islands, the storytelling tradition, the diaspora, you know, lots of islanders emigrated, um, especially to America, um, and it looks at that as a, as a, a past uh, emigrant himself. And then above us here, so we're going towards the very first copy of Ulysses. Uh, these are copies of Joyce's manuscripts and writings okay. and the idea is that they all le- lead towards the finished product uh, which is a nice touch um, so this is it when we talk about the translations just going back to what we talked about earlier on about the way the nuances of language and particularly mm-hmm. the nuances of how the Irish speak the English language yeah well when you translate Joyce given the way Joyce has written Ulysses particularly and mm-hmm. um, it's not what you would call grammatically necessarily correct. No, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Challenge that might exist in. Oh, I'm sure. Planet. Yeah, yeah. Like I can't imagine. Is that I was someone mentioned recently that they were talking that there was something on, and it was in um, Egypt, and there were subtitles being put across. It might have been Joyce's work or something. There was a reference to Chisler's. Oh, okay, yeah. And, uh, and the subtitles, Stonecutters. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So things like that. I'm sure Joyce is a translator's nightmare now, to be honest. Um, especially with Finnegan's Wake, I guess. Yeah. We're uh, looking at the uh, first edition, first copy. Yeah, so this is, this is the, the main piece of the museum, I guess. Uh, copy 001 with Ulysses. Um, in Joyce's personal possession, inscribed the inside cover to Harriet Shaw Weaver, as I mentioned earlier, his primary patron. Um, she herself donated it to the Irish state in the 50s, and then effectively it lay in storage for about you know close to 50 years um, in the, the National Library on it. 
um, there was an exhibition in the early 2000s that got to see the light of day and then you know when we opened in 2019 we got to put it on display and um, each you know the 400 copies each page made on handmade Dutch paper expensive Dutch paper uh, each page individually stitched together as well so it's extremely fragile um, published on the 2nd of February 1922 Joyce's 40th birthday completely intentional uh, he wanted to publish on 2222 yeah. um, yeah, Joyce had control over the design of the book and the layout so Ulysses itself loosely based on Homer's Odyssey he wanted the blue to represent the Greek the, the agency the, the white bold Ulysses print to represent Greece coming out of that as well um, yeah and then the, the final room was kind of a semi-working room exactly yeah so we show Joyce's manuscripts in here but we also give visitors an opportunity to do their own uh, piece as well so Joyce's manuscripts kind of go loosely chronological left to right so we have two essays over here and um, one of them being Joyce's The Day of the Rabblement the first piece that he had published when he was a college student uh, the other one is A Forgotten Aspect of the University question by Francis Skeffington um, we have one of Joyce's ledgers with his finances in there as well um, the little review um, Gas from a Borner a long form poem that Joyce wrote shortly before leaving the country for the last time um, and then some of Joyce's manuscripts for various different works so you'll see how messy they are you know lots of corrections lots of scribbles uh, Joyce was restlessly like kind of manically creative you know he was making adjustments to Ulysses three days before it was published and mm -hmm. um, you'll also see how small the print is in these notebooks and then on the right hand side in his later years how large they are because of Joyce's failing eyesight and um, by the end of his life um, Nora Barnacle his wife was doing most of the transcribing and he was dictating it to her um, and you know as well as showing these it's to show the insight into the creative process uh, it's to show how messy it is how, how much involved just getting pen to paper and getting the job done and uh, that's always the hardest part and um, we have a copy of Ulysses here with an illustration by Henry Matisse um, commissioned for Matisse he'd never read Ulysses so he'd done it on Homer's Odyssey because right. um, he'd heard that's what Ulysses is based on the Ken the Devil, I think, is probably a children's book. It is, yes. So that's based on a letter that James Joyce wrote to his grandson, Stephen Joyce. Right. Stephen Joyce was the, the last direct descendant of Joyce, uh, who, and he himself passed away um, about a year or two ago. Because again, I would have, like, again, we're all very familiar with Ulysses, but his earlier work, particularly, other than Dubliner's Vinegar's Wake, that kind of stuff. Um, because the other, I take it, this also children's the mind of Nick, Nick, and the Maggies, the children's book also. No, so this is actually this is a piece of um, of Finnegan's Wake. Okay. Um, so it's an excerpt from that. Um, yeah, the, the children's book was just um, made much later, uh, just um, based on that letter, and then obviously then it was later illustrated and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and then we have a couple of different various copies of, of Joyce's works, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we have a French translation of Ulysses. Um, we have letters dedicated to Ulysses as well, or to, to Joyce, letters written to Joyce. And then behind us is contemporary writers giving their insights, their um, tips 
to people looking to put pen to page. Um, so we have the likes of Frank McGuinness, uh, Roddy Doyle, and then um, Anne Enright with my favourite piece of advice to to writers, which is just to shut up and write, just you know, to get on with it. No um, and then we have pa- pads here, paper pads, where we give people the chance, the opportunity to, to write their own first few lines, and you can stick it up on the wall if they'd like, or they can take it with them. It's up to themselves. And the shanukle are on the wall up there. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. A good start is half the world. That's right. Yeah, it's small. The Yeah. Um, Anthony, um, if anyone wants to come here, what are the opening hours? So we open at half ten, um, we close at six, uh, last entry is 5pm, Tuesday to Sunday. So we close on Mondays except for bank holidays, we're open on bank holidays. And uh, there's, if you come in, how long would you allocate time-wise? I'd say, you know, give yourself at least an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, depending on your interest in literature and how much you think you're going to get out of it as well. And are there tours provided? Like what you're There is, yeah. So there's daily tours. There's a tour at 1pm each day. But then also because the building itself is, um, is quite historic, there's a historic house tour every Sunday. Okay. And that varies between being a half 11 or 3pm. You just need to check the website. And um, there's a restaurant? There is, yeah. So there's the Commons restaurant and cafe down in the, the, the lower level of the, the building. Um, there's the museum skip shop as well. And there's gardens. Um, so the museum has its own lovely gardens that uh, connect directly to the Ivy Gardens as well. And the website? Um, www.molly.ie That's M-O-L-I? M-O-L-I. And you're probably Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those? Yeah, M-O-L-I. it will be M-O-L-I. And he has been tremendous opportunity to have a chat to see the place and thanks a million for taking the time. Yeah, no problem at all.